We're going to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 25 and then move into chapter 6, and I'll explain why we're doing that here in just a moment. And I uh, want to just continue to look at the gospel and what implications it has for our lives, and then today for the greater community of faith together uh, in the gospel. And so that's where we're headed right now. So as we get into this text, we're going to see a divine uh, principle uh, that comes out that we actually see throughout all of Scripture and even just throughout the world in general uh, as God has built it into creation itself, and that is the principle of sowing and reaping. And this idea that if you sow, you will reap. Right? That's kind of the way it works. And not only that, but what you sow, you will reap. Right? If you plant pumpkin seeds, um, you're not going to get watermelons. It just doesn't work that way. Right? Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap back. And so um, sometimes uh, this is something that I think we, we individualize too much. When we look at the text from last week, you know, Paul's pointing out this list of weeds in our life that we need to pull out, all those works of the flesh. And then he also lists the fruit of the Spirit that God is growing in us through the work of the Holy Spirit in gospel-centered lives. And we can look at those two lists and be like, okay, this is about me and God. Right? Like, I need to get rid of these things, I need to grow these things, like this is a personal thing that I'm working out between me and Him. And it starts there, but it's not just that. Because you see, our spiritual lives can and do produce both weeds and fruit, not just in us, but in the community around us. Right? What's sowing in our hearts then spreads into the, the faith family that God has given us and into our church, into our community as we're living out our lives amongst one another. And so the type of seeds that we grow in us, the type that we sow and then reap, will determine the type of community that we cultivate together. And so Paul's going to now take the gospel to that place of talking about how does this affect the community as we do this life together before Christ. And so the main idea this morning is the seeds of gospel identity produce a harvest of gospel community. The seeds of gospel identity produce a harvest of gospel community. And he's going to give us five marks of a gospel community that we're going to reflect on for our church and ourselves this morning. Now, I mentioned earlier we're going to start in chapter 5 and then move into chapter 6 because, um, you know, when the Bible was first written in the original language, the numbers, the chapter numbers, the verse numbers, those weren't in there. Those were not part of the original text. Those were actually added in the 1200s to be help us better navigate the Bible. They're kind of like addresses to help us figure out where we're at. And they're good. They're helpful. There's nothing wrong with them. Um, but sometimes the way they split it up, they kind of put them right in the middle of an idea or a thought. Okay, And that's what happened today. Paul has a thought that he's starting in chapter 5 and continuing through chapter 6. And so we're going to follow that thought across these chapter numbers so we have the whole idea this morning as we're studying together. So... Look at verse 25 in chapter 5, and he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So the first mark of gospel community that we see here is to restore gently. Restore gently. He starts off, he says, if we live by the Spirit. Now, that is a phrase that he's been building up for the last couple chapters, right? To live by the Spirit means that we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we have been saved through his sacrifice, 
that we are now filled with the Spirit of God that lives inside of us, and He is working to change us and change our desires from the inside out. All right? So if you have faith in Christ, this is you. You are living by the Spirit, because He's working inside of you right now. He says, if we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit, which is what we talked about last week. Yielding to Him, right? Following His path instead of our path. Step by step, walking with the Spirit. So if we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, then he says, let us not become conceited or puffed up. In other words, he says, I I see you, right? You're saved, you're walking with the Spirit, God's doing some things, you're growing spiritually. He's like, but don't get puffed up about it. Don't think that you're all that just because you're growing spiritually a little bit, right? Don't forget that, hey, there's still work to be done here, right? You haven't arrived as if it's all perfect now because we're all works in progress spiritually, He says, don't become conceited in your spirituality. He says, when you do that, two things happen. First, you provoke one another. Meaning, we start to compare ourselves to one another and figure out, hey, I think I'm holier than you are, right? And we start to to challenge one another, and and it becomes this competition of who's more spiritual. Paul says, don't do that. He says, you can provoke one another, or the other end, you can become envious of one another. Maybe I compare myself to you, and I'm like, oh man, actually, I don't measure up very well. (laughs) You're actually more holy than I am, and so now I want to be like you, and I'm trying to, and I'm envious of your spirituality. Paul says, don't do that. He says, when we're conceited, when we're focused on us and not on others, it actually negates the whole purpose of what we're doing here together as a community. And so he's telling us here, like, don't become conceited in your spirituality. He said, instead, he goes into verse 1, brothers which is an important word there, it's signaling here who he's talking to, right? He's talking to the family, the family of faith. Like, we're in this together. We're not doing this faith thing alone. We actually can even pick that up from the last couple um, sentences where he said, if we live by the Spirit, right? And if we, I'm sorry, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. He's using collective language here because he's moving away from individual, how you get your heart right, to how we together as the people of God live in the gospel. And so he says, brothers, we've got to do this together. We're not alone. So he says, if anyone is caught in transgression. Now the word caught there is important. It is like the picture is like of an animal getting caught in a trap. Right, like if a hunter was out and he set a trap and the animal gets caught and he can't get out. He says if someone's caught in sin, caught in transgression, they, they're stuck in it. They're overtaken by it. It's plaguing their life. He's not talking about like the, the one-off sin that they do and then they repent and then they're good and they move on. He's like the one that they're caught in. Right? Paul here, he's not telling us to become the holiness police. Right? We're supposed to go around dinging everybody for every little sin that they do. That goes against the spirit of Scripture. For example, 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Right? That's our first move in the family of faith. Is that when someone sins, that we cover it with love and forgiveness whenever possible. He says, but sometimes people get caught. In other words, if the sin is continuing to be a problem, if it's continuing to plague their life, if they can't get free from it, then we need to help them. We don't need to leave them caught in that snare, in that trap. And so it's kind of a balancing act that we have to do, where as Christians, we don't need to be quick to criticize one another, 
But we also don't need to be afraid to confront one another if we are caught in something. He goes on, he says, you who are spiritual should restore him. Spiritual pointing back to what he's been talking about again, this walking in the spirit. And don't get confused. I think sometimes people read stuff like that and they're like, oh, he's talking about like the super spiritual Christians or like the, the professional Christians, right? The, the pastors and the elders and they do this. I don't have to do this. No, 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 no. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You're living in the Spirit. You're walking in the Spirit. And so this is part of your job description as well. All right? Those who are spiritual, he says, that are walking in the Spirit should restore him. Restore there in the Greek is a medical term, actually. And again, it's a picture of like, like someone resetting a bone back into place. Like when someone dislocates a shoulder or an arm. Like, like have you ever, I don't know if you've ever had that experience or seen that happen where you have to reset a bone. It hurts, all right? It is not a fun experience, but it's necessary. It's necessary to get the bone back in line with the rest of the body. It's necessary for the person to be healthy again, for them to be able to continue on in the way that God has called them and designed them. And so Paul said, hey, we need to restore. We need to get them back right with the body. We can't leave them there in their pain. We can help help them get right with Christ again. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What I think is interesting about that text is he doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know what? You got your own stuff, right? Like you got your own mess to deal with, so just don't worry about them. You let them figure you out, and you figure, or you let them figure themselves out, and you figure you out. That's not what Jesus says. He says, first, take care of your stuff, right? First, you repent of your sin, get your heart right, and then go and help your brother. He doesn't let us off the hook. He says, no, you still have a a duty here. You still have a calling here to help one another be restored in the faith. We don't stand by and watch our brothers and sisters struggle and sin as if it's not our problem. None of my business, that's them. No. We also don't condemn them or despise them or gossip about them. We go and we help restore them in love. Actually, he says, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness which is why we need to be walking in the Spirit to do it, right? Because remember, one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness. So as we're walking in the Spirit, then we have the ability to go humbly and gently and to restore them and not do it in a puffed-up, conceited way as if I'm better than you. And so we restore in a spirit of gentleness, and then he gives this warning, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Saying, hey, we got to stay humble in this process. Remembering that none of us are above sin. The moment that we start thinking that we're above sin and we won't fall to that and I'm not, I don't have to worry about that, we are setting ourselves up to be tripped by the devil. So Paul's warning, he's like, hey, don't, don't think that you can't be tempted too. Watch out for that spiritual pride that creeps in that thinks you're better than they are and you don't have to worry about that. You can either sin through being prideful or you can sin by falling into the same trap that they're caught in. But either way, be, be on guard. Because even spiritual people can be taken down by sin if we're not. And so he's saying restore them gently. 
This, this whole concept reminded me of a story in John chapter 8 where the Pharisees have caught, it says in the text, they've caught a woman in the act of adultery. It's the same word. Which interestingly enough means this wasn't like a one-time offense, right? Like this was kind of a lifestyle thing for her. And so they had caught her in the act of adultery and they bring her to Jesus and they're trying to, they really don't care about her at all. They're just trying to, to trip Jesus up, right? And so they're like, hey, what, what should we do with her? The law says to stone her to death. What, what do you say, Jesus? So they're ready to destroy this woman. And Jesus, Jesus says, no. Jesus isn't looking to condemn her. He's not looking to lecture her or, or embarrass her or chastise her. Jesus wants to restore her, not destroy her. That's his heart. And that's the heart that he has towards us. When we're caught in sin, he comes to restore us not destroy us. And that's the heart he wants us to have towards one another, to gently restore back into the family so that we can love them and say, hey, like Jesus said to the woman, go and sin no more. You're forgiven. Gently restore. Restore others in the community gently. That's the first mark of a gospel community. The second one comes in verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Second mark of the gospel community is to bear burdens. He starts off right there at the front, bear one another's burdens. And then he goes on to explain it. So I'm going to give you five observations here of what it looks like to bear one another's burdens, or at least from this statement. So the first one is, we will have burdens. (laughs) I know this is like the really deep theological stuff you guys come to Harvest for, right? Um, No, but in this life, in the broken, sinful world, we just need to know like that's reality. We are going to have burdens. We're never going to escape that. It's part of this life. And so... Number one, we will have burdens. Number two, we aren't made to bear them alone. God's plan is not for us to bear these burdens by ourselves. First, we're supposed to turn to God with our burdens. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So the first move is that we, we take our burdens to God and say, God, help me with this. But you know what? Oftentimes, we see in Scripture and just in life, the way that God helps us bear our burdens is actually through another believer coming alongside us to bear it with us. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, Paul gives an example of this. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. They were under a great burden. He says, but God, who comforts the downcast, who helps us with our burdens, comforted us by the coming of Titus. How did God help Paul with his burden? He sent Titus. He's like, hey, go help your brother out. Go bear some burdens. Right? And so we're doing it together. That's number three, the third observation. We are commanded to bear them together. We're commanded to bear these burdens together. And that means that we must be willing to ask for help. 
We must be willing to receive help from others when it's necessary and not go at it alone. So many times, especially in this country, we are programmed to, I got to do it myself. I got to be strong enough. I don't need anybody. I can handle it. And we won't ever even allow someone to come and help bear a burden. That's not the way God's designed it. And it means we also have to be willing to help others bear their burdens. Right? That, that, we are, that we are ready to step in as it's required. But here's the thing about bearing a burden together. You have to come close enough to that person to actually help them lift. Right? Like if you need something help, help lifting something, a big burden, if I'm all the way across the room, I can't help you. I have to come next to you where we can both grab a hold of it and lift it together. The other thing I noticed was the Bible never tells us to relieve one another of our burdens. I'm not supposed to come and take your burden and completely put it on me and let you just go free. I'm supposed to come with you and we're supposed to bear the burden together. Right? Bear one another burdens together. He goes on, he says, and so fulfill the law of of Christ. So that's the fourth observation. We fulfill Christ's command when we bear together. We're actually fulfilling what Christ commanded us to do. Earlier in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul said, for the whole law, the whole command of God is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Similarly, Jesus in John 13, 34 said, to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment, a new law. This is what I want you to do, he says. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You're supposed to love one another and coming and sharing and bearing burdens together. Paul continues on, he says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself which is the fifth observation. We must lay down our pride to pick up others' burdens. We must lay down our pride to pick up others' burdens. You see, sometimes, if, if you think that you are above helping other people with their needs and burdens, if you think you're above helping them and loving them because you've moved on and you're more spiritually mature and you don't have those problems anymore... Paul says, you're deceived. You have a misunderstanding of who you are and where you've come from. You have not arrived in the family of God as if you no longer have to help or bend down to someone else's level. He says, don't be deceived. He says, let each one test his own work and boast in himself alone. In other words, don't compare yourself to someone else. That's not the way spirituality works. You want to compare something, compare yourself now to the old you. And then you'll see how far God has brought you. Compare yourself to God's word and how far you still have to go. And then you'll realize you're not above helping anyone. And I don't know about you, but I need that. I need that reset on my heart sometimes to remind me, hey, I'm here to serve and love and bear burdens with these people. I'm not any better or any worse. I need Jesus just like they do. So Paul's kind of just level setting the playing field here. And then he puts this kind of confusing statement here at the end. He says, for 
for each will have to bear his own load. All right, didn't you just tell us to bear burdens together? And now you're saying do it alone? Like what's, this doesn't, well the key actually lies in, there's two different words here, right? He said bear burdens together, but bear your own load. So in the Greek there, burdens is symbolizing a a heavy, heavy weight. Think of it as a a two-man job. Something that you, it's too heavy to carry for one person. We had some furniture in our house that I needed to get out of the house yesterday, and so I texted all the guys in my small group and said, hey, I need some help moving this furniture out into the garage because I can't, I can't do it by myself. It's just too big and heavy. And so one of the guys came over yesterday and helped me move it. It was, a, it was a two-man job. It was a burden. But the word load is more like a backpack, right? It's the thing that you sling on your back. You can carry it when you go on the hike, when you go wherever. Like, it's a one-man job. And so what Paul's doing here is he's giving us some clarity, which is very helpful. He's giving us some clarity on when we need to give and receive help and when we need to just take responsibility for it ourselves. He's helping us discern the difference. And so I want, I want to speak for just a moment, and I'm going, to, I'm, going to basically, I'm going to address both ends of the spectrum, okay? And I'm not, going to, I'm not going to put you on either end. You can figure that out for yourself, okay? You need to place yourself in this, in this situation, But here's the deal. Well, here's what Paul's saying. Some of you need to understand, not everything in your life is a crisis. Okay? Not everything is a burden. There are some things in life that are personal responsibilities that we just have to strap on the backpack and just start going. And God's saying, hey, when it's that, when it's a load, you need to just pick it up and go. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is some of you are trying to carry burdens that you were never meant to carry because you refuse to ask for help. And God's saying, that's a two-man job, and you're going to collapse under the weight of it. So some of us ask for help too much, and some of us don't ask for help enough, and you need to figure out where you're at and get some clarity on what's a burden and what's a load so we can respond accordingly to the Lord, and to one another in the family of faith. Do not treat a load as a burden or a burden as a load. That's what Paul's saying. And so to help us kind of really apply this and really kind of drill down on this this morning, I want to give you a little pop quiz, okay? So take your paper over in the margin. I want you to number it one through six, okay? Seriously, go ahead. Write one, two, three, four, five, six, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read six scenarios here, okay? And I want you to label each one either L for load or B for burden. So you got to write down, L or B, all right? L for load, B for burden, and see if you can assess which one is which, all right? No cheating. Don't be looking at your neighbor's paper. We'll cross and grade when we're done. Okay, just joking. We will not do that. All right, number one, a young guy who constantly gets up late for work or school because he stays up playing video games all night ask you to wake him up every morning so that he doesn't lose his job or flunk out. Load or burden? Mark that one down. L or B? Number two. A woman who spends all her money on beer, cigarettes, and lottery tickets refuses to look for a job and is constantly asking you for money. Mark that one down. L or B? Load or burden? Number three. A businessman who works 12-hour days, including Saturdays, 
ask you to take his son to all of his baseball practices and games? Load or burden, L or B. Number three, or number four, rather. A married couple has three children, and one day there's an accident. One of the parents dies in a car wreck, and the remaining parent and the kids have needs that they need help with. Load or burden, number four. Number five. A husband abandons his wife for another woman, leaving her with four kids. She needs help meeting daily responsibilities. Load or burden, L or B. And then lastly, number six. An older, faithful church member gets sick and is having a hard time. He needs help with meals, transportation, and occasional living expenses. Is that a load or a burden? So look back at your paper. I would challenge that the first three are loads, and the last three are burdens. There are some things that are responsibilities that we are supposed to strap on and walk with. There are other things that are too big for us, and we need to ask for help. And the key is knowing the difference so that we can give and receive help in the family of faith as God has called us to do. I was thinking about this this week, and there's a, there's a scene in the last Lord of the Rings movie, um, Return of the King, where, where Frodo is getting really close to completing his mission, right? He's, he's going up the mountain. He's about to drop the ring in the fire, but he, he, he can't make it. He's worn out. He's weary. He just can't keep going. It's the, the burden's just too heavy. And all of a sudden, his faithful friend, Sam, comes up beside him and says, Come, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. And he grabs his friend, and he helps him walk up the rest of the way to the edge, and they drop the ring into the fire. He said, I can't carry your burden for you, but I can help you carry it. That's the picture of what Paul's giving us here for the Christian life. That those of us in the family of faith, that we need to help one another bear burdens and carry these things together when it's too much to carry alone. Bear burdens together within the community. That's the second mark of a gospel community. Number three. Third mark comes from uh, verse six. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So the third mark is to share generously. Share generously. Now, interestingly here, the word share comes from the same root word as koinonia. And if you've been around the church for a long time, you've probably heard that word before. It means fellowship or partnership, right? And, and so what he's saying here is that the relationship between a spirit-led pastor-teacher and a spirit-led church and people should be a relationship of sharing, of, of partnering together to share with one another whatever God has given them, right? And so on the pastor-teacher side, he's supposed to be sharing his gifts of teaching and the gifts of God's word with the people and raising them up in Christ. On the people side, they're supposed to be sharing their gifts of service and love and prayer and financial gifts to support that work so more people can continue to grow and be discipled. And so we see this relationship. Again, the pastor's job is to teach, to share that gift. And it's interesting to me that in this description of a spirit-filled people, a spirit-filled community, this is Paul's go-to move, 
right? When he talks about a spirit-led church, he doesn't describe it with emotional experiences or the use of certain spiritual gifts or healings or miracles or signs. His primary marker for a spirit-led church is that the Word of God is freely taught and preached and freely received by the people. So the pastor, teacher, teaches and shares his gift that way, and the people share their support. The phrase Paul uses here is he says that they share all good things with the pastor, teacher. In our case, it's not just me, but our church staff, everyone that supports the ministry of teaching and preaching here at our church. And all good things certainly include things like prayer and love and serving and support in those ways, but it also does specifically include financial gifts to support the work that's being done and being taught to your people. And I think it's important here to understand the heart of what Paul's saying. He's not saying, hey, you need to give something out of obligation. This is not like, a, it's not like you go to McDonald's and pay for your hamburger, okay? He's not saying you need to go to church and pay for the sermon. That, that's not, not the heart here. He's saying, listen, if you have been blessed, if you have received the word of God and it has changed your heart and changed your life and you have benefited from the gifts that have been shared with you through the teaching and preaching of the word, you in turn, out of gratitude and thankfulness, should share what you have as well. And not just for you, but for others. Because as we share in that way, the word of God continues to get taught and preached and more people are saved and more people are discipled and it goes forward. And there were some people who came before you that were giving into ministry that got the word to you and you heard the gospel and now you're here. It's a gratitude, it's a thankfulness as we share together in this partnership in the church. Now, in our culture today, a lot of people will bristle against a verse like this because they've seen abuses of this system in the church. So let's just address those this morning. Let's just call them out. Because we do need to be aware, we need to be on guard against abuses of God's word. Right? It never takes away what God's word says. It doesn't change the command. But it can change how we approach it to make sure that we're doing it with the right hearts. So here are some abuses of this. Number one, abuses by the people. The first, is, I kind of already addressed, is to be consumers. It's to think, well, I just come in on Sundays, I drop my money in the bucket, I get my spiritual food for the week, and then I leave. Like it's some transaction at a restaurant. Right? There's, no, there's no relationship with the pastor, there's no investment in the church, there's no accountability with other believers. I just come in, I get my thing, I leave. Right? That's an abuse of way to think about this relationship. The second abuse by the people is to try to be in control. Well, I give, and so you need to preach what I want to hear, and you need to have the programs that I want to have, and you need to run the church the way I want it run, because I'm the one financially giving into this, as if it's like taxes and politicians. It's not the same thing. But on the pastor's side, there can also be abuses. For the pastor, the first one is to cower. To cower underneath the pressure of the people because they do give. And that is where his livelihood comes from. And he has a family to feed. And if I want to keep my job, I have to do what they say. And then he cowers to the people and doesn't continue to preach the word of God as God has given it. And the second abuse on the pastor's side is to coast. To just get lazy and just put in the minimum. 
because there's not a lot of oversight and you can kind of do what you want throughout the week and just stop giving your full attention and time and gifting to the call that God has put on your heart. And all of those abuses are sinful and wrong and twist the word of God. So we need to be on guard against those, but we don't need to back away from the command that God has given us to share together in this partnership. There's a a great movie that just came out called Jesus Revolution. If you haven't seen it yet, man, highly recommend it. Um, But it, it tells the story of the Jesus movement revival that happened out in California, and specifically Calvary Chapel and how it kind of was at the, the, the start of all of that. But in the beginning of the movie, there's the scene where uh, you can tell, like, the pastor there, Chuck Smith, he and his congregation at the beginning, man, they're just kind of coasting, right? They've just kind of put it into coast mode. He's doing and saying whatever they want him to do and say to keep his job and to keep everything kosher. And then they're giving, but only because they can control the church and they can kind of, you know, make it look the way they want and feel the way they want. And then all of a sudden, these Jesus-loving hippies show up. And they come into the church, and they just start throwing everything out of whack, right? Like, everything's different. And so the, the men of the church, they come to Pastor Chuck, and they're like, hey, they got to go, right? Like, they're messing everything up. They're coming in here and changing stuff. They're getting the carpet all dirty with their feet, and like, we can't have them here. You need to get rid of them, or else we're going to have to do something drastic. And then it cuts to the next scene, and you see Pastor Chuck knelt down, at the front door of the church, washing every single person's feet as they come in so they could come to church and not get the carpet dirty. He was making a way. And the men, of course, still got mad and stomped out and took their money with them. But Pastor Chuck, he kept preaching the gospel and he kept seeing God move and he kept at the center this relationship of, hey, if you want to come in here, I'm going to teach and we'll do this thing together. And God continued to bless and grow because it was centered around the word of God. That's the kind of partnership, that's the kind of sharing that Paul's talking about here. So the third mark is to share generously with one another, spiritually and financially. To share with one another, spiritually and financially. The fourth mark of a gospel community is in verse 7. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So the the fourth mark is to sow wisely. Sow wisely. He says right here, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. So he's pointing his now to this, like I said earlier, this divine law, this divine principle that God has set up that, hey, this is the way it works. And if God says that this is the way it works, that's the way it's going to work. And you can't shortcut it, and you can't change it, and you can't get around it. And so don't be deceived. You can't get one over on God. He will not be mocked, Paul says. And then he says, whatever one sows, he will reap. And there's two kind of emphases in that statement. Number one, whatever one sows, he will reap. I said this earlier. Whatever seeds you sow, that's what you're going to get back, right? If I sow tomato seeds... I'm going to get tomatoes. No matter how bad I might want some corn, it ain't coming, right? Because I sowed tomato seeds. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap, good or bad. And then the second part is, whatever one sows, he will 
reap. In other words, it is inevitable. You will reap what you sow. Good or bad, it is coming. And so Paul's point here is like, listen, this is the way God designed it to work. So we need to sow wisely to reap the right harvest. He says there's two fields that you can sow into. The first one, he says, is to sow into the flesh, which we talked about quite a bit last week. Sowing to the flesh means to, to pander to it, to indulge it, to coddle it, to stay nice and close with our flesh rather than crucify it, which is what Paul said to do. And just to kind of, again, help us put some handles on this, I, just, I wrote down some examples of what seemed like maybe at first not a big deal or innocent-like behaviors, but when we do them, we're actually sowing seeds that it's going to bring the wrong harvest later. For example, every time we harbor a grudge or nurse a grievance against someone, we're sowing seeds to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, knowing that it's going to strain our self-control, we're sowing seeds to the flesh. Every time we entertain an impure fantasy or take a second lustful look, when a dating couple indulges privacy to the point that it leads to premarital intimacy, when a business person schemes and cheats and manipulates to get their way to the top, when we allow bitterness and resentment to build up in our marriages instead of forgiveness. We're sowing, sowing, sowing seeds to the flesh. And Paul's saying eventually the harvest will come. And we will reap corruption, he says. That word corruption means a, like a spiritual decay in this life. The more we sow to the flesh, the more we walk further and further away from the Lord. And eventually we're going to reap that spiritual decay in our life and in the next life, suffering and death. So he said, you can sow to the flesh or option number two, sow to the Spirit. And we sow to the Spirit by setting our minds on the things of God rather than on the things of this world. That's what Colossians 3.2 says, right? Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. That I'm putting my mind on the things of God. And, and we can assess this by asking ourselves just some simple questions like, am I focused on things that honor the Lord? See, a lot of times we don't ask that question. A lot of times, if we're being honest, we ask the opposite question, right? Is this bad enough that if I keep thinking it or doing it, that it's going to like take me away from the Lord? It's the wrong question. The right question is, is this good enough that it actually honors the Lord? Is it going to draw me closer? Not just is it going to hurt me, but is it going to help me walk in the Spirit? Another question, am I following the Spirit in my thoughts and in my actions? Am I keeping in step moment by moment? Or are these thoughts thoughts that Christ himself would think? This is how we train our minds to sow seeds to the Spirit. Because if we think the things of God, then our lives will follow that. Our actions, our behaviors, they follow our thinking. 
So if we think the things of God, we will start to live out the things of God and walk in the Spirit. And Paul says if we do that, if we sow seeds to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. Meaning spiritual growth in this life and eternal presence of God in the next. You know, I think if we're, if we're really honest with ourselves, um, not like out loud where other people can hear, but just in our heads, uh, if we're honest, most of the time, we don't really want to give up our sin. We don't really want to give up the desires of our flesh because it's fun. Because in the moment, in that, in that moment, it's fun. Our, our heart enjoys it. There's a part of us that actually wants that. We want to sow to the flesh. But eventually, we have to reap what we sowed. And then it's not fun anymore. And then we have conversations like, why is God letting all this bad stuff happen to me? And blah, 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 blah. It's because he's letting you reap what you sowed. This isn't on him. You sowed some seeds and now they're coming up. And we have to walk through that. You see, the sowing is desirable, but the harvest is not. And so Paul's saying, hey, you need to think ahead. You need to look out and sow wisely. Because if we're sowing to the flesh and not to the Spirit, then we can't restore one another with a spirit of gentleness. Because we don't have it. If we're sowing to the flesh, we can't bear one another's burdens because I'm still walking around in the pride of my own flesh. If we're sowing seeds of the flesh, then I can't share generously with others because I'm still holding on to greed. I can't do good to others because I'm consumed with myself. If we want to reap from the Spirit, we have to sow to the Spirit. Sow wisely to reap a desirable harvest. That's the fourth mark. And then lastly, number five, in verse nine, he says, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Fifth mark, do good. Which I know is like a catchphrase these days. It's used for all kinds of things, but just kind of wash that away. Okay, Paul had it first. All right, Paul was first. He gets dibs on do good, okay? And so he says, hey, let us not grow weary of doing good. And Paul, he's not saying that as a chastisement or a warning. He's saying that as an encouragement because Paul knows firsthand, like, it's easy to grow weary when you're doing good. It is. It takes a lot out of us, right? Oftentimes we'll call this compassion fatigue. Where, you know, you're out there, you're helping, you're loving, you're sharing, you're giving, you're bearing one another's burdens, you're doing all the stuff, and it's exhausting. <laughs> like, it just wears you down over time, and pretty soon you feel burnt out, and you feel worn out, and you just want to quit. Or, the other way that we can grow weary of doing good is through mission failure, or at least perceived mission failure, Right? You're sharing the gospel, you're making disciples, you're pouring into other people, and it seems like they're making some progress, and then all of a sudden, one of them falls off. Or worse yet, they turn on you, and they reject you, and you're like, 
what am I doing? Why am I putting all my time and energy into, into trying to help you and, and for this? What's the point? And we get discouraged and we get worn down and we get tired and we grow weary of doing good. But Paul says, don't grow weary for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. But like, hey, don't give up. Don't stop. If, if you need to take a breath, that's fine. If you need to pull back and regroup and refresh before you go back in there, that's okay. But don't stop. Don't quit doing good, he says, because we will reap. It's guaranteed that God has a reward for us. He has a harvest for us that will be good if we continue. But the key is this good harvest comes in due season, Paul says. And God gets to pick the season. <laughs> we don't get to pick the season, unfortunately. Right? Sometimes it's in this life. Sometimes we see the harvest in this life. We get to reap. We get to see the results of our doing good. Sometimes we won't see it until the next life when we're rewarded in heaven. But either way, Paul says the reward is coming. So work diligently and wait patiently for the Lord. He says do good as we have opportunity. Meaning, we should constantly be looking for opportunities, right? Looking around for opportunities that God puts in our path to do good to someone. You've probably heard it said before, we, I can't do everything for everyone, but I can do something for someone. That's all that God asks. He doesn't ask you to do it all. He says, just look for the opportunities that I put in front of you and do good there. And that's enough. He says, do good to everyone. Now, there's obviously a universal piece to that statement. And so I was just thinking, like, again, not everything to everyone, but how are we doing good to everyone in various ways as a church? Here in our city, we're doing good to everyone by doing service projects, right? We do that in our small groups. We do that with some of our church ministries at times. We're doing good by partnering with other organizations like the, the pregnancy center that we support and, and to help do good to others in our area. We're partnering with Plant Midwest to plant more churches in the city so the gospel can continue to go forward and make disciples. We're also doing good in our nation, right? Even beyond St. Louis. We got a whole team gearing up to go to Street Reach Ministries again this summer in Memphis to go and to share the gospel and to pour into those kids' lives and to do good in that place. We partner with the Great Commission Collective to, again, plant churches all over the nation to help do good and spread the gospel in that way. Even internationally, we look to do good in the world. We partnered this last year with Pastor Junior and his church in Nicaragua to help feed hungry families who don't have enough food for the week and then come alongside them with the gospel and love them and bring them to Christ. We're doing good to everyone, Right? As God gives us opportunity. And then he says this, do good to everyone and especially to the household of faith. So he does call it back, right? We want to do good beyond these walls, but we especially want to do good with this group, with this family that God has called us to. And if you've been around Harvest for very long, you've probably already heard this, but listen, the primary way that we do good to one another in this church is through small groups, right? Small groups are our first line of care for one another. 
Yes, we have a staff. Yes, we have elders. Yes, we have people who are leading. But listen, there's too many of y'all, okay? We can't take care of all of you. And so we need to be in small groups where we're caring for one another and everyone is getting the care and the help and the love that they need as we do good together. And if you're not in a small group, man, get in a small group. This is how you're part of the gospel community. I, I just listed a whole bunch of examples of ways that I know personally from testimony that we have done, people in our church have done good to one another, usually through small group ministry, by restoring a brother or sister who's fallen into sin. We've seen that time and time again in our small groups. By bearing a burden with somebody else who's struggling on their serving team and coming alongside them to help them. By sharing generously with our church to support the work of the ministry. We see that month after month. Helping transport an elderly member who can no longer drive so they can still come to church. Paying a bill for someone who lost their job. Tutoring a child who's struggling in school. Babysitting for that young couple who desperately needs a date night right these are all ways that we do good to one another in the household of faith so do good to the family that we have in christ that's the fifth mark and as we put all these together we see the seed of gospel identity start to produce a harvest of gospel community it starts in us sowing those gospel seeds but then it grows into this greater work as it spreads throughout the community of faith. I've said this before, but the Christian faith is personal, yes, but it's not private. We're never meant to do this alone. We're meant to do this together, in community with one another. We walk together in the Spirit, and it produces a community that's rooted in the gospel, and that it looks more and more and more like Jesus. So I'm going to close with two questions for you. Number one, are you in it? As I've laid out these five marks of gospel community, are you in it? Are you doing those five things? Are you participating in the community through these five gospel ways? And then number two, can you see it? When you look around our church, do you see the five marks that we've talked about this morning? This is who we want to be, Harvest. And so we need to be running after this. And if you look around and if you don't see these, man, we need to get to work. And it starts with each one of us sowing those seeds of the gospel in our hearts and letting them flow out through these five things. Let's be a gospel community for the Lord. Stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for our time together today. Thank you, God, for the power of your word. And just always, Lord, that it continues to work in our hearts and change us and call us to something greater. We thank you, God, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the way that you change us from the inside out. God, that you don't just leave us there. You help us to walk in the Spirit. And God, help us also to grow together as a gospel community. Lord, may the gospel be on display in our church for all to see, both internal and external. God, show us how to live this gospel as a people together. And God, help us build lives and build a community that reflects your glory and your love. We just pray all this in Christ's name.